Welcome to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. We're a church on Sydney's northern beaches, seeing lives transformed by Jesus. We hope you enjoy this message. This is week two of a two-part mini-series looking at how God guides us and how God leads us. And I want to want us to become aware as individuals and as His church, His body, um, of where God is leading and guiding us as a people. And Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing. And that would be a great question for us to continually be asking God, Father God, where are you working and how can I partner with you in that? How can I be involved in what you're doing? And be expectant that he'll start to show you those areas of your life and areas of other people's lives for you to partner with him. Last week, we looked at this idea of God's will and some really bad ways that sometimes we as Christians uh, try and follow God's will or try and discern God's will. Um, We looked at the finger in the Bible method, uh, the open door method, um, the sign method. God, give me a sign and there I'll, I'll be obedient to you. Um, sometimes we use the peace method. Like if there's a peace attached to something, that must be the Lord. That's a subjective experience. But we, we need to learn to grow as people in wisdom, in having the mind of Christ. And as we're trying to discern God's will, so often we find ourselves in the West asking very individualistic kind of questions. Um, questions of when, where, and what. But we see in Scripture that God is often asking the why and the how questions. So we ask God, you know, where am I supposed to live? Or when am I supposed to apply for that promotion? And he asks us, well, why do you want to live there? And how will you act in your new role if I gave you that job? God's will in Scripture is so often attached to his moral will, how we are becoming Christ-like, becoming people of his presence. And we finished last week looking at this kind of liberating factor that the onus isn't entirely on us to discern and follow. The onus is also on him to lead us. And we can trust in him, the good shepherd, leading us and getting us to where he wants us to go as his people. And so this morning I want to pick up from that place and I want to look at wisdom. And I want to define wisdom this morning as getting God's perspective or God's view on things. God desires us as his people to grow in wisdom, to become the kind of people that understand both his perspective, and then therefore make wise choices. And to put it another way, God doesn't so much give us guidance, instead he leads us towards becoming the kind of people who get guidance or make wise choices. And I want to land by looking at God's view through the story of Joseph and seeing how God gives us an assurance that means that we can face trials and troubles and even mistakes without sinking or crumbling because he's with us in that. So strap yourselves in. Sound good? All right. So I've titled this morning's message, Getting God's Perspective. And I want to do a little quick rehash again before we plug into this. Um, Before we look at God's view of guidance or of wisdom, um, for those that weren't here last week, I want to just dispel a myth again that we sometimes have as followers of Jesus. Uh, Larry Osborne wrote a book, 10 Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. 10 Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe. And in that book, he lays out this idea that Christians often have false images of the will of God or of guidance. And we tend to view the will of God as a blueprint, he says. And what is a blueprint? Well, many of us, um, when we're building a house or as a landscaper, when I start landscaping a backyard, I'm operating on a blueprint, very detailed plans about how things are supposed to go and when they're supposed to all fit together. 
And we tend to approach our lives like that in the West. We have very individualistic mindset that, you know, we're trying to find out what is the blueprint that God has for my life. Very specific individual plans and how it all fits together. Um, But if we have that idea about the will of God, there are actually two major problems that come up for us. The first is, how detailed is that blueprint? You know, when do we really start to sweat it? When does it come into play? Is it just big decisions like when to buy a house or when to apply for a promotion or a new job? Or is it at the intermediate level? You know, are you supposed to ask for a raise from your boss? Or what about at the micro level? Are you supposed to buy a cup of coffee or tea? Or are you supposed to catch the bus or drive to work? Or wear purple socks or white socks? When does the blueprint start to take effect? And the second major problem is what happens if you miss it? Think about all the implications of every little decision that you make on a daily basis. That could totally derail the blueprint. And I used this example last week, but let's say you slept in one Monday morning, so you drove to work instead of caught the bus. But it was on the bus that you were supposed to sit next to the person who was on the blueprint, supposed to be the spouse for your life. But you never met them because so you, you drove to work, so you end up marrying someone else who was someone on someone else's blueprint. So then the whole space-time continuum is blown up entirely because you slept in one Monday morning instead of caught the bus. And if that's the way that it operates, then there are hundreds of decisions that you make on a daily basis that mean you have a lot of reasons to get stressed. You could derail the blueprint on the fact that you ordered tea instead of coffee from the cafe. And that can often lead us to paralysis. But as Larry Osborne says, what if... God's will acts less like a blueprint, but more like a game plan. And what's a game plan? Well, it's really broad guidelines for approaching, in a sport context, for approaching the game. And there's a lot of flexibility within that game and how to operate within the game plan. It's a lot of freedom. You know, an opposition team might switch to zone defense if you're a basketball fan. And so you just adjust your game plan slightly to counteract that. And there are certain times, and this is very true of my life, where it seems like within the game plan, God writes up specific plays that you're supposed to play. You know, very specific, Jonah is an example of this. Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh. And he says, I don't want to go. Well, then you're going to get eaten by a big fish, but you're going to go. You know, like he's written up a very specific uh, play to run within the game plan. But more often than not, God's guidance looks more like broad brushstrokes that we have an opportunity to partner with Jesus in creating. And that's so liberating because the vast majority of situations, we have the latitude to actually exercise choice. And God uses our choices and interweaves them in his sovereignty to get us where he wants us to go. And importantly, to become the kind of people that God wants us to be. And we can trust his leadership in that. And that's why Larry Osborne writes, often our big decisions aren't nearly as important as a daily life of obedience. It's step after step walking with Jesus and trusting that he will get us where he wants us to go. So let's look at this from Scripture. Um, Proverbs is a great book to turn to if you're looking into what it means to have wisdom and the mind of God. Um, Proverbs 16 verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16:9, The heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now the lot, that's like kind of um, old school throwing dice or rolling the dice. So you roll the dice, but it's every decision. The way that that dice lands is from the Lord. 
God's sovereignty. Uh, when I was at uni, I, I studied biology, and there was this debate, which I'm sure is probably still going on, kind of around this idea of free will versus your genetics, or the nature versus nurture debate a little bit. You, know, um, you might think you're choosing your own path, but really, it's just your genetics coming into play that predisposes you to making a set decision. So you think you're making a decision based on your free will, but really it's just your genes coming into play. But if you're in the psychology department, you'd probably be thinking that, hey, you might be choosing your own path, but really it's your upbringing and your attachment disorder that you're carrying that means that you're predisposed to making that decision. So it's this nature versus nurture debate. And there's, to be honest, there's likely truth in a bit of both. Um, but often when we, we look at that debate, we see it as an either or, or even some mixture, you know, 50-50 or 60-40. But in Christianity, the question is often, do we have free will to make choices or are we predestined by God? The thing is, in Scripture, it's very rarely either or, or some split 50, 50, 60, 40, 70, 30. There are tensions in Scripture and the answer to tensions in Scripture is almost always a both and. We looked at this when we looked at the Kingdom of God series, living in the now and the not yet of the Kingdom. It's a both and. But living in that tension is incredibly practical. Because if we look at these texts, for example, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So plans and choices are ours. We have responsibility for them. God is not forcing you in any particular direction. And if you do something sinful, for example, there are probably consequences that you'll discover down the track for that. But what actually happens in history words, which is verse 1, or deeds, which is verse 9, as a result of those plans, they're set by God. So your plans belong to you, what, and, but what happens is God's. It's not some 60-40, 50-50. It's 100% free, and yet 100% determined under the sovereignty of God. There's such freedom in that. But we can't really hold that very well in our Western rationalistic mindset. You know, we want to make it some kind of mixture, 50-50 or 60-40. We have a scientific worldview, and it's impossible to hold 100% free and 100% determined together at the same time. But the truth is, if we believe in an either-or scenario rather than a both-end, then practically we're actually quite stuffed. This this, um, 100% free, 100% determined perspective is so practical. Tim Keller talks about this. um, But if you believe that there is zero connection between your fate and your choices, you'll either become passive, indifferent, or cynical. But if what I plan to do, so so for example, if what I plan to do has no connection to my fate, then why bother doing anything? That's where you land. Alternatively, if we believe that there's a total connection between our plans and our fate, then we're not actually liberated, we're paralyzed. So we, you talk to people on the street and everyone, a lot of people will say, oh, I'm my own God. I'm the master of my own destiny. That's a very you know, Western perspective. And chat to people, you hear that. But if that's actually the case, then we're stuffed because that's the blueprint concept for your life. We don't have a millionth of the wisdom necessary to work out how everything connects together. So that choice to drive to work versus catch the bus could derail the blueprint for your life. And I don't know about you, but that's actually terrifying for me. <laughs> Every little decision you make could stuff the whole thing up. But when it's both and, we're actually liberated. We can plan and yet we can rest in the truth that our shepherd is going to lead us and get us to where he wants us to go. 
So your choices are yours. If you make bad decisions, there's probably going to be bad consequences, but God is the one in charge of your ultimate future. And as Centerpoint Vineyard, a baby church plant here, God is the one in charge of our future. That means we can do our best. We can go for it. We can try things. We can pray. Um, we can seek the kingdom. We persevere in prayer, but we can ultimately relax that God is going to get us to where he wants us to go. God's sovereignty is far greater than your foresight or my foresight. That's that proverb. The lot is cast into the lap. You make the play, and yet the end result is ultimately up to God. In his sovereignty, he works our lives, our choices into his bigger tapestry for our good and for his glory. Dallas Willard, I mentioned him last week. He's a bit of a spiritual hero of mine, but he calls it leaving outcomes with God. You make the play, the best play that you think in the moment, and yet you can leave the outcome up to God that he's going to work it for, for your good and for his glory. And I want to finish this morning looking at an example of this from Scripture, which is Joseph's life. If you know the Joseph story in Genesis, uh, Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob, um, but he was the firstborn of his, his final two sons, the firstborn of Rachel, which was Jacob's beloved wife. He had um, uh, almost an obsession with his wife, Rachel. And his final two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, were born of his wife, Rachel. And so Jacob had extreme favoritism towards Joseph. And that favoritism was really poisoning that family dynamic, if you know the story. Um, Joseph was well on his way to becoming a prophetic picture of a, a typical Gen Z or millennial, um, entitled and disrespectful towards his elders. That's a joke, <laughs> partly. I'm a millennial. I'm, that, was, that was a bit passive-aggressive, sorry. So Gen Z. Um, but Joseph started having these dreams uh, about his brothers bowing down to him, and in, in his arrogance, he went up and told his brothers these dreams. Now, I'm a middle child, so I have my own separate issues, but um, <laughs> as an older brother to a younger brother... Uh, I can tell you that growing up, if my younger brother told me that he had dreams from God that I was going to bow down to him, I probably would not have taken so, uh, so well to that. And um, his brothers, Joseph's brothers, did what every good older brother would do in that situation, and they sold him into slavery. Um, but for years from that point on, Joseph was thrown into pit after pit, dungeon after dungeon, um, prison to prison. One thing after another seemed to go wrong in Joseph's life. And he was trying to do um, the godly thing and um, do the right thing in all those situations, and yet he just kept finding himself in pit after pit. And he must have been wondering in those different circumstances, what about these dreams that I had when I was a kid? How is all this going to work out? Did I, did I go, where did it go wrong? At what point did I make a wrong call here? It just seems like life has been happening to me. And in the midst of all of those pits, God was silent to Joseph. And then through a set of circumstances, interestingly, also involving prophetic dreams, um, Joseph finds himself elevated to prime minister of Egypt. And he's overseeing the planning and the response of this drought and famine that was about to happen. And during this drought and famine, Joseph's brothers, they come from their homeland in Canaan and they come into Egypt looking for food. And um, through this whole process, there's reconciliation. And Joseph eventually reveals to them that he's their brother and everything seems to be working out. So they come and they move to Egypt, they get land, 
um, they're living a good life, and they bring the father, their father Jacob, and then Jacob settles, and Jacob dies. And we pick it up in Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, that's Jacob was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, and this is really a lie, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants of God, your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. And this is really interesting, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, can you see that it's only years later, because of, and perhaps in spite of, the bad things that happen in Joseph's life, God works everything for good. God ends up using Joseph's wrongful imprisonment multiple times to, in the end, facilitate the salvation not only of Joseph and his entire family, but thousands of others. But it's only in the end that you can look back and you can see, ah, oh, that's where God was working. And that's why Joseph was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, God in his sovereignty, he even used the brother's sin in selling their younger brother into slavery for their ultimate good and survival. Think about that for a moment. God even used their sin. Incredible sovereignty. And the brothers who survive, if you know the story, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel is born out of them, and out of the nation of Israel comes Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, who, if we put our trust in him, are also saved and given eternal life. So if you think about it, you and I are here today able to worship Jesus, to know God personally because of how God worked through an ultimate situation of Joseph's life. No one could have foreseen that in that moment. And yet God used it all for his good and his glory. Now, when I think about that, I land in two places. First is just utter amazement of the sovereignty of God. But the second goes along something like this. Why did there have to be all that rubbish in Joseph's life? The slavery, the pain, was all that necessary? Couldn't God have just sent an angel to Joseph and said, Joseph, you've had these dreams, but your brothers are probably not going to like it. I'd probably just hold on to those. You're becoming arrogant and prideful, pull your head in, and then say to the brothers, hey, you guys are getting angry. Um, you need to pull your heads in, otherwise you'll end up doing something stupid, like selling your, son, your, your brother into slavery. And uh, Jacob, your poisonous love for your son Joseph is ruining this family. Um, pull your head in. And, oh, by the way, also there's going to be a famine in a bunch of years' time. You should start saving up a little bit of food now so that you'll be able to live through the famine and then you'll become the 12 tribes of Israel. Why didn't God do that? Well, for one, I think no one ever becomes wise like that. So you can read all you like about trusting in God or have someone tell you that you're supposed to trust in God. 
Um, but it's really only through those experiences of having time after time where in the midst of it, you can't necessarily see how God's working. And yet you look back over your shoulder and you go, oh, there was my shepherd. He was leading me. So you can't actually make yourself trust God. God shows you that he is trustworthy. And the second, I think, is we need to realize that guidance is more something God does than something God gives. The story of Joseph shows us that we're actually standing in the midst of God's guidance. We are being navigated, even though we don't necessarily see it in the moment. And we might pray something like, God, God, I need your guidance. I need your guidance. I need to hear you. And sometimes in that moment, he's just asking us to trust him, that he is guiding us. Brennan Manning, um, who has written a bunch of great books, uh, one of them is Ruthless Trust, and it actually was one of the books that really shifted my life and my perspective on all this stuff back in the day. But he tells this story um, of a man called John who goes to visit Mother Teresa in Calcutta. He writes this, When John Cavanaugh, the noted and famous ethicist, went to Calcutta, he was seeking Mother Teresa and more. He went for three months to work at the House of the Dying to find out how best he could spend the rest of his life. When he met Mother Teresa, he asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she replied. He then uttered the request he had carried thousands of miles. Clarity. Pray that I would have clarity. No, said Mother Teresa. I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to and must let go of. When John Kavanaugh said that she always seemed to have clarity, the very kind of clarity he was looking for, Mother Teresa just laughed and said, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. We must realize that silence is not absence. Hiddenness is not impotence. Even when things look like they're going the most wrong, God is somehow working all of those things for our good. Which means we must never ever think that God's not working. No matter how distant he seems in the moment. And also, never think that you'll necessarily be able to figure out what he's doing in that particular moment or what he's up to. Often it's only in the end when you look over your shoulder that you can get God's view or his wisdom or his perspective and you realize that he's been carrying you the whole time. See, God's view is the view from the top, not the view from the valley. And when we find ourselves in the valley, devoid of subjective blessing perhaps, we think, oh, we must have made a wrong turn somewhere. How do we end up here? Somehow God's abandoned us to our own devices. But that's not how it works. When we get back up onto the ridge top, we look back and we go, oh, I can see God was working all of that for his good, for my good, and for his glory. So Joseph's story tells us that life can be hard, and yet God is always good, and God is always working. And that's an incredible resource. So Romans 8, 28 and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice that it doesn't say all things are good. That's often how we read it. It's in all things, which means God is using all things. Even the dungeons and the pits of our lives, he's using those to somehow work them into his divine plan. For our good, for his good and for his glory. But it's only in the end that we can see it. But that, my friends, is amazing news. It's liberating news because our shepherd 
is guiding us. He's getting us to where he wants us to go. And he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So I'm going to finish there this morning. I'd love us to spend a bit of time responding to what God wants to do. You've been listening to the Centerpoint Vineyard Podcast. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or by visiting our website, www.centerpointvineyard.org. The theme song for this podcast is Highest Praise by Kieran Delahart. So we sing